you were listening to the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. Red Hill Church is a gospel-centered, missional church in the Edwardsville-Glencarbon community of the St. Louis Metro East. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. Morning, church. My name is Aubrey, if you don't already know me. Today, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, through Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. Give you a minute to turn or scroll there. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth, and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife on the earth, for every bird of the sky, for every creature that crawls on the earth. Everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done and rested on the seventh day from all this work. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy. For on it, he rested from all his work of creation. The word of the Lord. Right. Thanks so much, Aubrey. That's my daughter, for those of you who don't know. Yeah. And uh, this morning, we're talking about being made in God's image. And I like just I just want to kick things off by saying that there's something really wonderful about having kids. I got three kids. They're amazing. When my oldest son was born, the very first question or statement that my mom made was, let me see his pinkies which is pretty specific and pretty odd. If you don't know this one interesting fact about everyone in my family line born a Hollis, and here's the interesting detail that you need to know, that we have pinkies that are slightly different than most people's pinkies in that they are crooked. Let me show you. And go ahead, I know you want to do it. You can look at your own pinkies. Some of you also share that genetic anomaly, right? Some of you have crooked pinkies. Some of you have straight pinkies. And uh, I think one of the things that my mom wanted to be able to demonstrate and wanted to see was, yes, in fact, this child has also been created in the image of his father and his father and his father before him with crooked pinkies. We, We like to be seen. We like to be known. We're also afraid of being seen and afraid of being known. And I want you to know that that desire to be seen and to be known is rooted in who God actually is. We talked about it a little bit last week in our sermon, the first sermon in Genesis. We're going to be working through the book of Genesis through the, like over the course of the year. There's going to be a lot of stuff that breaks it up into like mini series, but we're going to work through the whole book. And the, one of the first things that we see is that God wants to be known. God wants to be known. He wants people to know who he is. In fact, Romans 1 says that if there was no Bible, if there was no Jesus, and if no one ever said anything about the existence of God, you could just look at the world. And there is enough evidence in the world to believe that there is a God. Even more than all created things, God created humanity And humanity is differentiated from all other creation. Men and women are differentiated in that it says in the text, they're made in the very image of God. An image is a representation of something, like it represents something. I don't see any this morning. I was wondering if we might get a jersey or two this morning. I mean, I'm wearing a Red Hill jersey this morning because I want to be identified with Red Hill Church. In fact, It has made such a mark on me that I went ahead and made it a mark on me. And for those of you who don't know what our logo represents, it represents coffee stains. 
you look at it and maybe you're like, oh yeah, that totally looks like coffee stains. And the main idea behind it was just that life is very messy. And particularly when you're with family and friends, you don't worry about spilling quite so much. That, that's just a normal part of living is that there's some spilling that goes on. But why do, we, why do we wear jerseys? Why do people wear football jerseys? And some of you are like, this is a question that I have been asking a lot lately. Is like, you know you're not the football player, right? Like they're not going to call you up. And I can tell you that at least in a slim portion, at least a small portion of those men, no matter how old, how out of shape they are, still holds on to some small sliver of hope that maybe, just maybe, they will somehow, through a twist of fate, be called up to the big leagues to actually play for the big team. If you don't believe me, then just look around the room and find a man who's kind of like grinning and looking down a little bit, and you will discover that, yes, there is still inside of all of us some small hope. The reason that we wear those jerseys, the reason that we pick a particular brand of clothing, a particular brand of shoe, the reason that we put art on our walls or select a favorite thing and then promote the fact that we select it is because we want to be identified with it. We, we want everyone to know where we stand in this situation. We want to be identified with them. We like identifying with our heroes. And what God has done is he's reversed that for us. Our hero likes being identified with us. It's very hard for us to grab a hold of that and really believe it because we have such a low view of ourselves and because we have such self-condemning thoughts. You don't probably have a worse critic than that little voice inside your head that tells you what a terrible, terrible person that you are and sometimes tells you that your family or your friends or your job or your children would be better off with someone else in your place. That's a common human experience that we don't talk about very much because we're afraid of it. And because deep down somewhere in an insecure place, we're afraid that it's true. And the truth is that God loved you enough not just to send his son to die for you, but to make you in his very image. That you are an image bearer. I, uh, I once painted a painting. I almost brought it this morning, but it is a source of great shame for me. Because you can't be good at everything, and painting is definitely on the list of things that I am terrible at. And I painted it for my wife, whom I love deeply. And I painted it as an expression of my love for her. And it is an expression of my love for her. A lot of very bright colors. It's a very loud painting. It's meant to be a beautiful sunset, and it looks like some sort of meteor shower from another dimension raining down on a small, what you have to sort of assume is a little canoe with a sail with a heart painted on it. You have to be able to imagine sort of all those things. And I wanted it to be beautiful, but the truth is, is that it was an absolute mess. But the deeper truth of it is that it was meant to be an image, not of my capacity as a painter, but of my deep love for her. And so we keep it in the attic, because that's the only place I'll allow it to be. <laughs> my love for her is not for popular consumption. It's just for her. Imagine, if you will, if you, you wanted to be known, and so you said, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to make a statue of myself because I want to be known. I want people to know who I really am. And, and, and you were serious about it, that you didn't want it to be comical or in any way farcical or any way open to misunderstanding or misinterpretation. And so you made a statue of yourself. And I know probably what you're thinking is like, you're going to have to be either a really great artist or a really fantastic narcissist to do something like that. Like, I'm gonna make a statue of myself. But just play along with me for a moment. That you wanted to be known, so you made a statue of yourself, and you posted it somewhere, you put it up somewhere. You'd be very careful about how you made it. Because you would want to be accurately represented. The only thing, I think, the only thing that's scarier to an artist 
than being known is being misinterpreted or misunderstood. And I am not, by any stretch of the imagination, an art critic or an art aficionado, except for being able to use that word, or an art expert. But I know that a common thing is when an artist displays their work is to say, let me tell you what this means. Let me tell you about this painting. So imagine that you built this statue and then you had the responsibility of making sure everybody knew, here's why I chose the materials that I chose. Here is why I built it to the size that I built it. Here's why I placed it right here. And here are the important features that I want to draw your attention to. Because I want to make sure you really have a good idea of who I am. And you go, okay, maybe that could work. Now imagine if you were so serious about it that you built 7 billion statues and scattered them all over the world. You would go, that person really wants to be known. And I would say, that is what God has done. What God has done is he has made us in his image And then he has multiplied us, and then he has scattered us all over the world. And we say, yes, yes, but sometimes people are absolutely terrible. Sometimes people are awful, sometimes people sin, sometimes people are gross. In fact, very, very, very often there is a failure to represent the image perfectly. And I would say to all of that, It's very, very true. And it doesn't change the fact that it was made in his image. Because if you put a statue up anywhere, well, there's an old saying. I'll just just give you this. There's an old saying. Sometimes you're the bird and sometimes you're the statue. And I'll let you figure out what that gets to mean, all right? But anything that you put up of yourself representing yourself, I, I thought about having you all draw a picture of yourselves And then having a greeting time where you had to explain why you drew yourself the way that you drew yourself. But I was like, that's going to take all my sermon time. And I'm pretty selfish with that. So I didn't do that. You can do it in your GCs later. But you would draw something and you would say, here's why I drew it this way. Here's why it looks this way. And what I dislike about myself most often are things that are made by design. The things that I condemn and criticize myself for, which are unchangeable attributes. Losing my hair. That's, that was a real bummer, guys. When Sarah was like, I don't know how to blend it because there's not enough to blend. It was like, that is devastating. Shave it off. We're just, it's gone, right? Being short all my life. There was never a season where I was tall. We had one time, I was not the shortest kid in class. It was when we had a Korean kid come in as a foreign exchange student was like, man, you're going to be my buddy. We're going to hang out a lot together. All of us have things that we go, I wish I could change it. I wish it was different. And we try to take control of those things, and we try to change those things. And I, I just want to say, exactly as you are, you were made in the image of God. Male and female were created. Verses 26 and 27, let's read those again. It says, then God said, let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness, They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. By the way, in your Bible, that verse 27, it's like offset a little bit because it's a poem. It's an ancient Hebrew poem, which is, you know, just interesting. So, so God made humanity in his image. There's a great quote from C.S. Lewis. This is not the quote for the screen, Evan. But C.S. Lewis, in the opening line of The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis said, there are no ordinary people. You have never met a mere mortal. Everyone that you know, every single person who has ever lived will live forever, uh, will live forever either with God in heaven or in hell being punished for all eternity. That is the end result of the life that is lived on this earth. You've never met anyone who is a mere mortal, anyone who's just a person. And this, I think, is part of the reason why it's so important, like the way that we live. Uh, I, was, I heard a story recently of someone who was trying to share their faith with a friend. And the friend was like, so you can just sin and then God has to just forgive you? 
Like you sort of like you've got God over a barrel. Like Jesus died on the cross, so you can do whatever you want. And uh, this person gave a great response to it. And, and they went back and forth several times. The bottom line is God wants to be known. So holiness matters because God is holy. God wants to be known, so missions matter. Telling people who've never heard about Jesus, about Jesus, that matters because God wants to be known. Evangelism matters. Sharing the gospel with people who've heard it a thousand times, it matters because God wants to be known. Justice matters. When we see injustice in the world, we should care and we should intervene because God wants to be known and God is just. Mercy matters. When we see people longing for and in need of mercy, we should be merciful because God wants to be known. The way that we live matters because God wants to be known. And we are his image bearers. We're the ones who represent him. I love it when anybody tells, uh, this happens to all parents. The baby is born. And one of the first things everybody wants to know is, who does the baby look like? Does the baby look like dad? Does the baby look like mom? Get out the baby pictures. Follow the progress along the way. There's this old song that when people used to sing specials in church, which still happens at some churches, like the special music would happen right before the sermon was preached, that, that went, uh, Lord, I want to be just like you because he wants to be just like me. And this is a living testimony for fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, parents and children this is what we do with all of our heroes. How does something become popular? Well, someone popular does it, and then other people start to imitate it. We're trying to become like someone, and we're made in the image of God, and God wants to be known. Uh, there's a great book by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. If you don't have a copy, come see me, and I'll give you a copy of it. And it is a fascinating little book that C.S. Lewis wrote, and he said, that really he said he discovered it, that it was written by an old demon to a young demon about how to tempt people. How are we going to win the war against God? So, I mean, you can throw that quote from C.S. Lewis up on the screen. He said, uh, one must face the fact, this is an old demon talking to you, one must face the fact that all the talk about is love for men, that's God's love for men, and God's service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda. But an appalling truth, he really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself, creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. The way that we live, the person that we are, it's meant to be a reflection of who God is. Let it settle in on you for just a moment. The apostle Paul told the church in Corinth, he said to them, you are God's ambassadors. It is as though God is making his very appeal through you. God's appeal to humanity through you. And maybe you're like me and you go, I don't think I can be responsible for all of humanity. And to that, I would say, you're not responsible for all of humanity. You are responsible for your life. You are responsible for how you live before God as an image bearer. The way that you live matters. We're often a distortion. And when you see this, you start to understand things about your life. Like some of you have been betrayed or abused or neglected. You've had a parent leave or criticize or hurt you. You've had a best friend who turned their back on you when you needed them most. And you, you want to say, why does that hurt so deeply? And, and here's why, is because that person is supposed to be an image bearer. So the way that people treat us leaves a much deeper impact than the way that animals treat us. Animals can cause a lot of physical pain, but animals don't tend to be really, really deeply prolonged resentful. 
You know what I mean? Like, I've never been betrayed by a tiger. I've never had a dog that was like, you know, like just really, really rude to me for no reason whatsoever. I've never been verbally abused by some kind of fish. And you're like, that's really, really stupid. Yes, it is really, really stupid. But when you understand that there's a longing inside of all of us to know God, whether you want it to be there or not, it is there. A longing inside of all of us to be safe somewhere, to be safe in someone's presence, to be absolutely, completely known without any fear at all. That thing inside of us that wants to run the opposite way and say, don't let anybody find out is lying to us about safety. But it's a lie that's crafted because so many times image bearers have let us down. Our source of greatest pain, our source of greatest and deepest regret is often a distortion of the image of God. Also, our source of deepest joy and our source of deepest pride. Like, isn't there, there's something inside of us that like when we do a good thing, what does everybody want to do? We want to make sure somebody saw it. You know what I mean? We want to be like, like Jesus is like, don't tell anybody when you do a good thing. And we're like, okay, but you don't really mean that. You mean like I can tell a couple of people or post it to my Facebook account if I do a really, really good thing because I want to be validated in that really good thing. I want people to know that I am a really good person. We have a whole phrase for it. It's called virtue signaling. But also, we just want to be a good person and we want to be known as a good person. And what I want to say is, is if you're just stardust, if you're just molecular atoms, if you're just matter, where does that come from? And why does it bother us so much when people let us down? Why does it bother us so much when we are unliked by others? If you want to find someone who cares a lot about what people think, just listen for the person who says, I don't care what anybody thinks. Because that's kind of how it works. We have a deep need for someone to make things right. We have a deep need for mercy and for good news. Because all of us have been the one who is wronging others. And all of us have been wronged by others. All of that is an echo of who God is and what God alone can do for us. At this point, and I don't know what it's like for humanity at this point, but it must have been amazing because there was no sin. The Garden of Eden is this perfect place. God's like, you guys can eat whatever you want, and your job is to fish and take care of animals and just really ultimately enjoy being with each other and enjoy being with me. God looks out at what he's done, and he says, it's very good. It says in verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Them, the, the male and the female. Uh, we live in the messy middle. There's, I don't know of a more hot button issue. I'm sure there is one, but I don't, I don't, I wouldn't want to be able to name it than uh, gender identity. And I want to say to anyone who's here who struggles with gender, uh, gender identity that we live in the messy middle. We live in the time between Eden and the new Eden. We, we live in a complicated and complex time. And um, while God has made things clear that there's male and there's female and there's a wonderful difference between the two of those things, we can say all of us struggle in many ways. And this is a safe place to struggle. And wherever you are and whatever is happening inside of you and however complicated or difficult or large that looms in the presence of your life at this moment, I want you to know two things. You will always be able to find love here, and love always contains truth. But there's no expectation for any of us that the simple knowledge of truth equals the immediate application of truth. In other words, we're all in the process of becoming. And exactly where you are, this is the coffee stain mentality for us, 
exactly where you are is a safe place to be. But you will be called towards God's design because we believe that's ultimately good, not ultimately easy. It's not easy to submit. It's not easy to say someone else is in charge, not me. But because love always has truth, we're going to say, we're going to call you to that patiently, lovingly, and the promise is whatever's happening, we'll try to walk with you. And let me go ahead and cut to the end of the page of that and say, I'm a flawed image bearer, as is every other person who is here. And so we're also going to need mercy and grace from any of you who are struggling and from any of you that we have wounded along the way or hurt in the process, we would immediately say, we're all in need of good news. Good news is you don't deserve it, but I forgive you. That's what the good news is. So anyway, back to the simple and uncomplicated and uncontroversial idea of two genders. I'd like to say that these two genders are created with equal worth and dignity there is all kinds of things that you can draw out right here. Uh, it's significant, I think, that God took a rib from Adam, uh, something from his side, not from his head, and not from his foot. It's funny. Uh, we always struggle with power. We always struggle with wanting to be the best. You know what I mean? It's, it's uh, ever since sin entered the world, it's a blame game and a competition for power. And, and that's the world that we live in, right? That, that's the nature of the world that we live in. Uh, my son, Nathan, I cleared this story with him earlier when he was maybe, I don't know, five years old. He was pretty young. Nathan's always been super clever and uh, quick-witted, and uh, I love that about him. And he went uh, to his mom, and he was like, hey, mom, who has the prettiest eyes in our family? And Sarah said, your dad, which is a blatant lie. Mine are brown. Everybody else either has blue or hazel. So mine are not the prettiest, but in her estimation, the prettiest. And he was like, okay, you have to say that because it's dad. Who do you really think has the prettiest eyes in our family? And Sarah sort of launched into a motherly discussion about how I don't really like questions like that because it can make people feel bad and it can make somebody feel like they're better than other people. And so I don't really, I don't really like you know, interacting and engaging with questions like that. And she gave kind of like the mom explanation that you would expect her to give. And, you know, five or so year old Nathan leans back and he goes, I'll take that as a Nathan. <laughs> Men and women are different in a lot of ways. I'm not interested in articulating all the ways that we are different, nor am I interested in saying that all of those ways are universally and uh, always true. There are plenty of women who are much stronger than I am and better at things that you go. Men are typically better at this. I, I don't really, I'm not interested in engaging in that discussion or debate. The, the problem for us is that we feel an endless need to prove both our power and our worth. And it's woven into the sinful world and the sinful fabric of our being. It's, it's, it's woven into the existence of a fallen world. And you can find it in the Bible, by the way, not necessarily between men and women. I mean, you can in some places, but I think the best example is in Mark chapter 10. You can flip to Mark chapter 10. It'll also be on the screens uh, if you don't want to turn there. In Mark chapter 10, uh, Jesus does some cool stuff. Uh, he talks a little bit about divorce. He blesses some kids. He tries to get a, a rich young ruler to go to heaven, but the rich run, uh, young ruler would rather have a heavenly pavement. Um, he talks about possessions, how difficult it is for rich people to enter the kingdom. And then he gives the third prediction of his death. For the third time, he says, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed. Like He lays it out there. Immediately, after Jesus says, I am going to die. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be crucified. Here's what happens. James and John, it says in verse 35, the sons of Zebedee approached him and said, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. We do this exact thing all the time with our prayer. All right, God, here's what I want today. Let me lay it out for you. And let me just go ahead and say, Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't say, how dare you ask me for something? He says, tell me what you want. 
What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. And they answered him, allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with a baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it's for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Not because James and John missed the whole point of Jesus saying, I'm going to die for everybody. I'm going to lay down my life. But because they want to sit in the best spot. I want to be number one. How dare they ask you privately for that thing that I was going to ask you for privately. I can't believe they asked for that before I asked for that. That's so wrong. And James and John like, we call dibs. You respect dibs, don't you? Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. It's not to be so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And to that, we say a hearty yes and amen, so long as first I get to tear down the systems and the people who do have power. I'm fine with being the servant of all as long as everybody else is also going to be the servant of all. You know what I'm saying? I'm good with submitting to everyone as long as everybody else is also in on the game. But what happens, this is one of the most common questions that comes up in marriage counseling. What happens if I do my part and they don't do their part? And to that, Jesus says, even the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And over and over and over and over and over again, the disciples are like, hey, when are you going to take over Rome? When are you going to put us on thrones? When are you going to establish our authority over everyone else in the world? Jesus resurrects and visits them. And they're like, now it's time, right? Now it's time. Eventually, these guys get the Holy Spirit and have a total change of attitude and heart. But all along the way, they think it's all about power. And Jesus, in the moment where they're asking for power, says to them, in the presence of others who are tyrants who will lord it over you, if you really want to be great, you become the slave of all. And this is a difficult and bitter pill for us to swallow. But the reason that it is important for us to execute is because we are image bearers. We are supposed to look like God. We are supposed to be becoming like Jesus, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. He became obedient even to the point of death and even to the point of death on a cross. That's what Philippians 2 says. And we're supposed to be becoming, to be becoming, not immediately to be like him, but to be becoming like him. We should be in the process of moving towards that, moving towards him. And in fact, if you want to sum up the way that you're supposed to live and love as followers of Jesus, you can look at Ephesians 5.21. Throw it on the screens for me, Ev. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Out of reverence for Jesus, knowing and understanding who Jesus is, to submit to one another. We like, as men, that verse that says, wives, submit to your husbands. We forget that it's preceded by submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We misunderstand the entire point of power. We misunderstand the entire point of authority in almost every respect and in almost every area of our lives, that it is not to lord it over others. That true authority says, I will take the lowest place and become the servant of everyone. At our church uh, behind the scenes, 
when we draw out our organizational chart, we draw it upside down with Jesus at the bottom. And we say that the only way to get into authority is to descend into authority and to be willing to take on responsibility for everyone and everything that's above you. This is so deeply countercultural that it might absolutely shock the world around us were we to say, my purpose in this life, in relationship with you, is to say, how can I serve you? How can I encourage you? How can I bless you? Well, what about in the face of people who are tyrants and who lord it over us? The way that you win is to say, I'm going to be like Jesus, who had people who lorded it over him. He didn't cower in their presence. In fact, one of them said, don't you know who I am and don't you know what I can do to you? And the response of Jesus to this eminent world ruler was, you don't get to do anything except for what God will let you do. But he didn't buck. He went like a lamb towards its slaughter. I'm not advocating for anyone to stay in an abusive situation. If you are in an abusive situation, get out of it. Get someone to help you get out of it. What I'm saying is there are plenty of moments in life where you and I have someone who mistreats us, and we are more than willing to meet them on the plane of submission, but we oftentimes are less than willing to lead, uh, to lead them there. And to say, I really trust that God sees what's happening, that God is a rewarder of those who love him. The threefold blessing that we see in verse 28 is a recurring theme in Genesis, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. This is what Jesus wants. This is what God wants for his people, for his image bearers, to be fruitful. You are expected to bear fruit. And guess what? You are already bearing fruit. Your life is bearing fruit. Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. In Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45, it says a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. On the other hand, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes or grapes picked from a bramble bush. Pause right there. Scroll backwards. Go backwards one. Every, everybody goes, obviously, right? Apples grow on apple trees. They've never grown on something other than an apple tree. That's the way that seed bearing works. That's the way that bearing fruit works, right? Is everyone in agreement? That's how bearing fruit works. The seed produces the fruit, yes? Okay, now the next verse. A good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of his heart. The things that are coming out of your life the things that are coming out in your actions and the things that are coming out in your words, that's just you bearing fruit. That's literally just you giving fruit to the thing that is inside of you, which is why what we need is not to have good deeds taped onto us, attached to us, but deep transformation, which takes time we need to be different on the inside. We need to be changed on the inside. If you look at Galatians 5, verses 16 and 17, Paul, writing to the churches of Galatia, says, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, 
pay, uh, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And Paul goes on and he says that the way that you fulfill the law of Christ is to carry another person's burdens, to serve them. What if the reason that people acted the way that they act is because they are carrying an unbearable burden? In my angry outburst, the fruit of the flesh in my life just adds weight to it. That's not what God does. That's not what God has ever done. The accuser and the one who condemns, the one who wants you to feel immobilized in sadness and grief and condemnation, that's the enemy. That's not God's plan for you. We're going to see that next week when Adam and Eve sin and God doesn't come out and be like, I can't believe what you did. How dare you? He comes out and just says, where are you? What's going on? What happened? Be fruitful. You're already fruitful. If you don't like the fruit that's being born in your life, I would say to you, don't try to make new resolutions. Bear fruit that's in keeping with repentance. We're looking not for temporary fixes, but for deep transformation. Multiply. This is the original Great Commission. Why is it a big deal for people, humanity, to multiply and to fill the earth? Because God wants to be known. God wants to be known. The people that you do life with, the people that you interact with, the people that you regularly see at your job, at your school, in your neighborhood, in your home, at family reunions, when you go out to the same gas station, when you go to the same restaurant, those people desperately need to know who God is. They have a deep longing to know and to be known that can only be satisfied by God. And God, in his manifold wisdom, said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to create the world in such a way that everybody will know that I exist, and then I'm going to scatter my image all around the globe. And I'm going to make it so that every person looks wildly different and has different likes and dislikes, lives in different places, rich and poor, so that everyone can see some image of who I am. It's so beautiful when we get to see it. When we, when we get loved, when we get forgiven for something that we never thought we were going to get forgiven for, when someone gives us just the right word of encouragement, when, when a person in our life meets us in a moment of our life and we go, now I can take another step because you were here with me. It's why it matters. It's why it matters that we show up for each other. I bet every person in the room has a wound from a time when someone just wasn't there for them. I bet every person in the room has experienced some kind of grief where there's nothing anyone can say to make it better. But just having someone with you has this like supernatural impact on the moment. It's why we gather together for worship. It's why we gather together outside of this particular box to care for one another, to love one another because we need a reminder of who God is because we are prone to forget. We're prone to forget. We're prone to believe lies. We're prone to believe that God doesn't love us, that God doesn't see us, that God doesn't care about us. And oftentimes we come to those conclusions because of the way that we are treated by image bearers. And to that, I would simply say, I can put on a jersey that carries the same number as LeBron James. I can shoot a basketball thereby indicating that there is someone who has this name and plays this sport. But if your expectation is that I will be able to perfectly imitate him, you're going to be disappointed. The people in our lives are not going to be a perfect imitation of who God is, which is why we all need to be good news gospel people. All of us need to be forgivers and people who are forgiven. And if it's been a while 
since you said to someone, I'm sorry, and would you forgive me? I would like to suggest to you that that is probably a source of great anxiety for you and can create the presence of massive discouragement. And the reason is because you know who you really are, as do I know who I really am. And when there's a backlog of that in my life, I don't feel okay because I'm not meant to live like that. We were never designed to be carriers of sin and shame. We were made in his image. Well, on the seventh day, after looking around and saying, this is not just good and not just very good, but very good indeed. God looked at all he had done. He said, this is very good indeed. The heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his works of creation. The seventh day, the Hebrew word is Shabbat. We say Sabbath. I'm leading a gospel practice on Sabbath, and I'm not going to give you all the information of that in this particular moment as much as I might like to, but I would like to share a little bit about this idea. Very briefly, first I want to say that I believe the statement that Dallas Willard made when he said that hurry is the death of love. We wear busyness like a badge of honor. In fact, people who are not busy, we assume, are good-for-nothings who are lazy and will never accomplish anything of worth or value in their lives. And when we respond to requests... For things that we don't want to do, we say, I can't do it because I'm busy. I'm too busy to do those things. The truth is, is that word is limited, but that's, you know, for my GP, not for all of you. I would like to say that, you know, a day is 24 hours, which is measured by a full rotation of the earth in respect to the sun. A moon is measured by tracking the lunar cycle, the phases of the moon. Sorry, a month. I think I said a moon is measured by the moon, which I guess is still true, logically speaking, but not helpful informatively. The month is tracked by the lunar cycle. The phases of the moon complete a month. And the year tracks one full orbit around the sun. But did you know that the week has no construct in creation? It's completely a Christian thing based solely upon the account in Genesis. The last time that a serious attempt was made to change the week from a seven-day week was in 1792 during the French Revolution. They, They created what they called a rational calendar, which, by the way, was a full attempt to de-Christianize France. The the French rationalists wanted to get rid of God and wanted to eradicate Christianity and wanted to remove all the holy days and believed that a longer week would increase productivity. So they created a 10-day week. They extended uh, hours, they extended minutes, and they extended seconds. So a second wasn't a second anymore, a minute wasn't a minute anymore, and an hour wasn't an hour anymore. And French uh, clockmakers and watchmakers actually had to reconstruct how clocks were being made at the time to accommodate the 10-day week. And the belief was that it would cause productivity to greatly increase. And what happened instead was productivity plummeted There was a wave of illness and an unbelievable spike in suicides. In addition to that, in my study this week, I found that there was also an incredible outbreak of brutality against women and children. Part of being an image bearer is the gift of rest. And I'm not talking about sitting down and scrolling Instagram or TikTok or whatever. I'm not talking about sitting down and watching Netflix. 
I'm talking about allowing your body and your soul to rest. You are not responsible for sustaining the universe. You are alive, you will die, and history will keep marching forward. Your family will grieve, and it will be different, and they will keep living. Your church family, even if you're a pastor, will just keep going. And how do we know that? Because all of us are preceded by a whole bunch of people who died, and yet here we are, still somehow able to have good days, even though we loved them and we missed them, still able to just move on. A couple of years ago, I took a sabbatical, five weeks. I was not allowed to know anything about what was happening at Red Hill. I was not allowed to talk to anybody about stuff from Red Hill. The first Sunday of my sabbatical, I had one of the computers that was vital for people being able to check in for kids' ministry, and I had to drop it off at at the worship gathering way early. So I came in with it, and listen, Carrie Davis had put the fear of God into people about not talking to me, particularly the staff who she leads. And and I walked in with a backpack, and Marcus Schomburg saw me walk in, and, and he kind of like, it was one of those like, he did this, and then he just goes, he wouldn't even speak to me, right? He wouldn't speak. So he, I, I, I was like, I'm just dropping it off. I'm not here to participate. I dropped it off. I left. I was gone for five weeks, for five weeks. Now, I'm not only the lead pastor, but I'm also the planting pastor. I'm the only pastor, like the only full-time lead pastor Red Hill has ever known. It's been my job, this is what I think, my job to carry this burden. My job to lead these people. My job to help people know, love, and follow Jesus. My job to help the church grow and reach the community. And we had been in a season for quite some time of really pretty steady numbers. Nobody was really bailing out and nobody was really opting in. And I was like, I'm going to be gone for five weeks. Five weeks felt like a lifetime. I almost had a breakdown the first week. And I'll tell you about that another time. I got back five weeks later, and the church had grown. <laughs> On the seventh day, God rested from all that he was doing. He blessed the Sabbath day. He made it holy. When he gave out the ten words, when he gave out the ten commandments, one of them was rest. Keep that day of rest. Keep it holy. Keep it sanctified. Keep it separate. Keep it just for me. When Jesus talked about it, he said the Sabbath is not about keeping a bunch of rules. In other words, you don't exist to keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath, uh, it exists as a gift to you. The Sabbath exists for you, for your good, for your benefit. We don't like to rest. But if you will start the practice of resting just a little bit, you'll discover all kinds of wonderful things. If you don't get enough sleep, you are never going to be the person that you want to be. You're never going to be able to love others and be patient and be kind. And if you don't rest from your labor, you're going to believe two things at least that are not true. Number one, that there are both things and people who cannot live without you. And number two, that your value and your worth is based on the work that you do. And neither of those things are valid or true because you were made in the image of God. That God loved you so much that his expectation was not that you would someday put on his jersey And through hard, hard years of practice and effort, become like him. But that through his divine decree, you would be born with the jersey on, made in his image. As we move towards a time of response, I want to say this. 
If you're honest, then you know that you've fallen short and you're not what you're supposed to be. And there's only a few things you can do with that. You can try to avoid it. You can numb it. You can run away from it. You can pretend like it's not true. But there's still something inside of you that goes, I know I'm not what I'm supposed to be. Alternatively, you can despair over it. And you can say, it's never going to get better. This is just my life. But thankfully, those aren't the only options. The third option is to look at the whole story, which is that you were made in his image. And what sin did was destroy that. It ruined it. Not completely, but certainly enough. Which is why Jesus was sent. Because it wasn't enough for God to say, I made you and you messed it up and now it's on you. He said, I made you and you messed it up and now I'm coming after you. And I'm going to take care of it for you. Leviticus says, there's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And every Sunday we take the Lord's Supper together as an act of remembrance to honor Jesus. It's important for us to know what the Bible claims about Jesus, that Hebrews uh, 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. That God himself would come to the earth and would die for you. Actually for you. The mess that you are, the rebel that you are, the person who hates God that you are. That's how overwhelming and overcoming and overpowering his love is. We take the Lord's Supper to remember and honor Jesus who did that for us. He said to his disciples, when you do this, you're proclaiming my death. That God himself would come and die for villains like us. Once again, the hero saying, how can I serve you? How can I help you? How can I humble myself and come under you? Rather than rolling down from the top some decree of judgment, which we rightly deserved, he rolled down from the top mercy, which we could never deserve. Grace, which we could never earn or pay for or somehow manipulate out of him. He freely offers it to you. And if you're here and you say, I know that I'm not the image bearer that I'm supposed to be, my recommendation to you, my counsel to you is to do something about that. And I'm so confident in the Holy Spirit that I would say, feel free to explore your options. And so confident that I would dare you to examine your own life honestly. I was speaking with a friend this last week whose son has walked away from God. He hates God. He's just got a mess of a life. And my buddy Everett, he was like, I talked to him and he's like, he goes, I'm prodigal and I'm never coming home. This is what his son said to him. And Everett said, I just looked at him and I said, you know, that's what the prodigal said, right? That's literally what the prodigal would have said. And he said, I'm happy being who I am. And this was said by a person who is so depressed that multiple times he's attempted to take his own life. What if you're not uncomfortable in your own skin, you're just uncomfortable in your own soul? There's a cure for that. And I dare you to have the courage to face off with it. I'm not afraid of you asking honest questions of me or of God. And God is not afraid of your doubt or your questions. Over and over again, he gets that encounter. And over and over again, he gives honest answers that are true and kind. Also, during this time, we encourage you to give. Well, churches shouldn't 
talk about money so much. They should probably talk about it more. We should probably talk about it more because I don't think there's a more pressing or prescient idol than money for all of us. We really like to have enough of it so that we are safe and secure. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't save money and I'm not saying that it's wrong to be rich because I think both those things can be wonderful things. What I'm saying is everything that you are belongs to God. Everything that you have belongs to God. And your responsibility is not to give in a way that pleases me. I don't care. The amount doesn't impress or discourage me in any way. What I do care about is that you get the life that God has purchased for you. And so you should give. And we repent. Like, I'm available to pray with you. Other people will pray with you. You don't have to pray with other people. You can talk to God about what's going on in your life right now. If you've never given your life to Jesus, give your life to Jesus. Repent of trying to be your own God and your own Savior and instead submit your life to him. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you need to repent. I can promise you, you've been sinning. And if you're like, no, I haven't, then great. Don't repent of anything. Thank God for grace and mercy that allowed you to live faithfully from the last repentance to this moment. What I'm saying is we have the kind of God that we don't have to be afraid of. We don't have to be afraid when we've messed up. Sarah and I used to talk about what we wanted for our kids when they were older. And there was this one thing that stuck in my mind, and here's what it was. They're going to mess up. And when they mess up, they're going to have one of two responses. I cannot let my parents find out about this. Or I've got to call my parents because I know they will help me. And the way that we treat them between now and that moment will determine a lot about whether or not they respond with option one or with option two. And can I tell you that the God who is in heaven is not in heaven going, if you tell me, I'm going to smoke you. He wants to help you. He wants to serve you. He wants to unburden you. He wants you to be known and loved. We repent because we fall short of his glory and we repent because we know what's waiting for us. Help. Right there in the moment of need and trouble. Help. So you can listen carefully to the Spirit. I'll be available to pray with you. Would love to do it. As will others. Exactly as you are. Not all the things that you do but exactly as you are, you are made in his image. And he likes what he made. He likes you. Because you're his. That's good news. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. Help us to yield our lives to you. Help us to reflect you to the world around us and to each other. Help us to be really, really good at repenting without fear. Speak to us. We're your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. When you're ready, you can come to the table.
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions about this message, our church, or the gospel, or if you'd like to get in touch with one of our elders, you can visit our website at www.redhill.church. Navigate to the I'm New tab and click the option for Connection Card. Filling out this online card will allow you to get in touch with us and one of our elders will follow up as soon as possible. Thanks for listening and be sure to check back next week as we continue to study and apply God's Word together.